Today's reading is from 1 Corinthians 1, 1 to 9. Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified to Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, let me invite you to pray with me as you look at 1 Corinthians together. Our Heavenly Father, we ask, would you bless us this morning through your word? Father, by your Holy Spirit, would you work powerfully in us? Would you free us from our sin? Would you empower us for good work? Father, would you encourage us in the gospel? Would you fill us with your love? More than anything, would you help us to see a little bit more of Jesus? We ask this in his precious name, for your glory and for our good. Amen. So if you've not yet met me and you've come in uh, just now, last couple of minutes, my name is Brant. I'm the lead pastor here at Christ City Church, and I'd welcome you to, to join with me as we look at 1 Corinthians together right now. It's our first Sunday in our new series. And like I said earlier in the announcements, if you haven't yet got that Corinthians scripture journal, it's out back uh, on the connect table. Make sure you go and grab one of those and uh, let it be your companion as you walk through this series together with us. And as we begin this series, I have a very, very short introduction. It's really just a question. As we look together at this letter and begin to introduce it this morning, I want to ask you this. What is it that you think makes a city great? What is it that you think would cause somebody to flourish together in a city? What, what are those things? What, what would you put your, your hope in to bring flourishing to a city? What I'd like to do this morning as you consider this question is introduce you to the city of Corinth. And to introduce you to Paul and this letter to the Corinthians and to the heart of the gospel message that he shared with the Corinthians as they pursued life that is truly life in the ancient world. So we're going to look at just two points this morning. We're going to look at Corinth and we're going to look at Paul's uh, relationship with the Corinthians. And then we're going to kind of conclude as we draw some encouragement from these first verses. So we're going to take a little time right now to to look at Corinth. And what that means is that the nerds among you um, will be happy. We're going to look at some details about the city and and the culture and what's going on. And maybe the nerds among you would even actually be a little uncomfortable, but there's not more information. You want to read a whole book about the background of Corinthians. And for the rest of you, you're going to have to hold on a little bit as we walk through uh, this portion of our sermon. But I encourage you that it is important. This is something that is essential for us to grapple with as we come to the letter of 1 Corinthians. And the reason is that unless we understand a little bit of Corinth, we're not going to understand Paul's letter to the Corinthians. 
And if we understand a little bit about Corinth, I think that we'll actually be helped in another area as well. We'll be helped to see that actually, perhaps of all the letters in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians might be the most relevant letters for our lives today, living in Vancouver in 2021. So let's look at Corinth, and let's start with a little geography. And I've um, put some slides up to, to help us along our journey. Um, and I want to talk first about the Acro-Corinth, because it's impossible to uh, talk about Corinthians. Um, let me get the slide of the Acro-Corinth up there as well. I'm not sure if someone's on slides. We've got slides. Great. There we are. We're good. Um, and the Acro-Corinth uh, is this thing that you can't talk about Corinth without talking about the Acro-Corinth. And it's a big, um, giant hill kind of behind the city here. It was 574 meters tall. And in the earliest times, it served as Corinth Citadel. It was the place where the fortress was built that protected this flat area on this isthmus, which was a st- strategic location in Greece. And the isthmus, we can see if we look at the Corinthian map. You see this map of Corinth. And there's this narrow section in the middle with a, a little arrow pointing to it, the isthmus there. And it's less than six kilometers across. And it has a harbor on one side and a harbor on the other side. And you can imagine a canal would have been useful. Well, they dreamt of building a canal as early as the 4th century BC. We have writings about this canal that they wanted, but it never actually happened until the 1880s. So many, 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 many years later before the canal was built. What they had instead was this nifty little thing called a diolkos. I don't even know if I'm pronouncing that right. It's very difficult to say. But the diolkos is like a poor man's canal. And what it was, was this road that we can see pictures of that went around that narrow section from one side to the other. And it would save you a treacherous six-day sail around that that broader portion in the south of Corinth, uh, where people would often die and where sailors would say things like, when you double Malai, forget your home and your household, just say goodbye to your family, you'll never see them again. Instead, you could take this Diolkos. And what you would do is you would get a bunch of horses and men and rolling pieces of wood and such, and you would drag your vessel from one side of the ocean to the other side for six kilometers. It wasn't easy, but it kept you alive. And really, in this way, Corinth was situated in the strategic position, which was the gateway to the east on one side and the gateway to the west on the other side where Rome, the center of the world, was to the west, and where Asia and all its produce and all of its wealth were on the other side, and Corinth was in the middle. Strabo, this old uh, Greek philosopher and geographer and historian of the first century, he once said this, Corinth is called wealthy because of its commerce. Since it is situated on the isthmus and is master of not one, but two harbors of which one leads straight to Asia and the other to Italy. And it makes easy the exchange of merchandise from both countries. So it's an economic hub, a hugely important economic hub uh, between East and West, but also between North and South, right? Because all of these things coming into Corinth were of use for Greece. This whole province of Achaia, this Roman province of Achaia, formerly Greece, that, uh, that needed all of these resources. And so Corinth was the place where these things were supplied. And this meant huge prosperity for Corinth. It meant expensive property. You can relate to that perhaps in Vancouver. 
and meant great business and career opportunities in Corinth. The scholar Murphy O'Connor um, comments this, his Corinth had more business than it could comfortably handle. The immense volume of trade was augmented by huge numbers of travelers. Profit came easily to those prepared to work hard, and cutthroat competition ensured that only the committed survived. So Christ City, if you wanted to make it in the ancient world, you didn't go to New York, you didn't go to London, you didn't go to Rome where the old money was, you went to Corinth. You went to Corinth. If you wanted to make it, if you had a dream and a hope for the future, you went to Corinth. Kind of like that Jay-Z line, uh, if you can make it here, you can make it anywhere. Talking about New York. If you can make it in Corinth, you can make it. And you could make it in Corinth. It was a possibility for you. It was a place of newly minted millionaires in opportunity. And it had a really interesting history to it because it was in Greece, but it wasn't actually a Greek city. Because back in 146 before Christ, BC, it had been destroyed by Rome. And it was colonized later as a Roman city under Julius Caesar in 46 BC, or sorry, in March of 44 BC. And Julius Caesar then populated this destroyed city with an injection of Roman citizens. He took all his veterans of war. He says, you guys, come and live here. It's a strategically important part of geography we can rebuild. He also took freedmen. It was back in Roman society, it was possible to earn your freedom uh, if you were an indentured slave. Perhaps you've seen the movie Gladiator and you know a little bit of what I'm talking about. But they took freedmen, they took uh, veterans, and they took artisans and tradespeople and laborers that were all Roman, and they brought them into this place in Greece and said, you go ahead and start a city. And it began to grow. And soon as it grew, it was joined by travelers and tradespeople and entrepreneurs from the East. So Jews and Syrians and beyond were coming in and being part of this new colony here in this powerful and strategic place. It was diverse in both culture and ethnicity, but also in religion and spirituality. So it was a place where you could go and you could worship the gods of your choosing. You could worship a smattering of the buffet of gods of your choosing. You want a little bit of of the Greek gods, a little bit of the Roman gods, maybe perhaps a little bit of of Judaism or something else from the East. You could do all of those things. And temples and shrines and even synagogues were all over the place in Corinth. It was spiritually pluralistic, just like our city here in Vancouver. But all this diversity, it drove another thing in Corinthian culture. Because Corinthians loved to think of themselves as highly intelligent, philosophical people. For them, Athens was the has-been university town. Corinth was where it was at. Corinth was like the TED Talk up-and-coming town. Right? And the philosophers that wanted to make it um, would have an audience, basically an open-air TED Talk sort of situation. You could come in and you could listen to the person that had the newest angle on the newest way of life and the how to live, and et cetera, et cetera. You could listen to them. And if you liked them, if you liked them, the Corinthians liked them, they would have a future. Hey, I was hurt in Corinth. They accepted me. Now I can go on and travel the Roman world and really make a name for myself. They were huge in philosophy, and they loved wisdom, persuasive rhetoric, and knowledge. With all this ports and temples and diversity, um, some of these temples actually even would be places that would host um, religious prostitution. So it was part of the religious rites where you'd have these sacred temple prostitutes that would be part of the temple life. 
But with this port and diversity and this, all these people gathering here, travelers, uh, with it was this. It was, a, it was a city with a business life like New York and a nightlife like Bangkok. It was a city that, that had all the business opportunities you can imagine, but was incredibly sexual, sexually promiscuous and loved their sexual promiscuity. It was a part of their culture. The idea for them of Paul coming and teaching uh, this way of flourishing of one man and one woman committed together in marriage, it wouldn't have made sense to them. It wasn't something that their neighbors thought, oh yeah, we get it. That's great. Let's go with it. It was foreign to them. All in all, Corinthians was a diverse city. And it had, because of this diversity, a dark underbelly. Because the quest for wealth and status in this international setting meant that there was deep division, deep social stratification between the wealthy and those that had social means and those that didn't. Right? So the poor were very, very, very poor. The rich were often very, very rich. And the social uh, movement and abilities of some were not those of others. And even if you could get rich in Corinth because it was a land of opportunity, your wealth didn't necessarily buy you social status. Maybe we can relate to that in a place like Vancouver, where there's some very, very wealthy people that are working hard to try to buy social status to accompany their wealth. Because of this, in Corinth, you had to go to the right events and meet the right people. You had to hobnob. You had to uh, work hard to, to build yourself a social network. You had to maintain a large group of followers and somehow use all of those followers to leverage them to your own advantage in the society. Perhaps that sounds familiar to you. The New Testament scholar Ben Witherington, he even comments on this. He says, Corinth was a city where public boasting and self-promotion had become an art form. The Corinthian people thus lived with an honor-shame culture orientation where public recognition was often more important than facts. Again, maybe you can relate to that. I remember talking to some people in Vancouver about um, different uh, ways of being in Vancouver, ways of life here. And some people that feel very strongly, I need to project a certain amount of wealth to indicate status, where, where the facts are less important about my cultural projection and my social status that I can try to get away with. That was very much like Corinth. And they even had the Olympics. But unlike us, they watched them. Unlike us, they actually watched the Olympics when they came around. They were, every two years, they would have the Olympics in Corinth. It was part of what was called the Isthmian Games. And they were, they were celebrated and they were brought in and Corinth would host them. And this indicates a deep love of sport, but also gets at that culture of comp- competition, of, of really loving uh, competition, even fierce competition and seeing the strong survive uh, while the weak maybe not so much. So you can imagine a church in this setting. It wasn't like you just left all of these cultural things at the door when you became Christians. I mean, some of you guys in this room are first-generation Christians. Like, you, you became a Christian yourself. Nobody else in your family is a Christian. A lot of you have a history of Christians behind you. Everybody in Corinth was a first-generation Christian. Everybody in Corinth was a first-generation Christian, bringing in a lot of their cultural normals into the church with them. They're supposed to be unified in Jesus as this holy people set apart, living this new way of life, of flourishing and life in obedience to Christ. And yet they were deeply divided. 
People constantly preoccupied with wealth and their own pleasure and their social standing. And it would cause problems. It would cause problems. You can imagine the problems it would cause even in the diversity that was in the church. I've actually copied a little table to indicate some of the social strata that were even in the church in Corinth. It's from a book called The New Testament and Its World by N.T. Wright and Mike Bird. An excellent little book. Um, it's not little at all. I, I lie. It's a very large book. Uh, but the, the, the table is helpful because in the table you can see how diverse the church was. Obviously, it would have had Jew and European and Italian and Greek and Syrian and all these different ethnic groups, but it also had all these social strata. You had a director of public works, so basically this very high-standing position in the most powerful city, or at least the second most powerful city in the ancient world in Corinth, Erastus. You had a Jewish synagogue leader, Crispus. This, this man who had some standing, obviously, in the Jewish community and was important. You had heads of households. You had those who were capable of service and benefaction to Paul, people who had some means. They had some money. They had had some measure of success, and they could be helpful to Paul in his ministry. You had merchants or artisans, people who were laborers, people who were destitute and had nothing, and even slaves. It was a diverse church, prone to problems. The bottom line is this. Corinth, the city, was a powerful city with a rich culture and a huge ego. This is a city of human achievement, of power, of wisdom, and the life of pleasure that one could live if you had the means to attain it. The Corinthians hoped and trust in themselves. If you ask the Corinthians what they believed would make a city great, they would answer, well, its name needs to be Corinth. And so this city, the messenger of Jesus Christ, Paul the Apostle, came. Paul comes to this city with a message that's so different. A message radically different from the culture about what true flourishing life is. And all throughout this book, we'll see that the message of the cross is that true power and glory and wisdom, they can't be found through self-promotion and personal achievement. You can't get them that way. They come to the cruciform death to self-life in the gospel of Jesus, empowered by his Holy Spirit. And Paul knew this personally because he lived this message. You see, one time in Paul's life, he lived for the glory and the power and the wisdom uh, of this world like the Corinthians did. He, he was an elite Jewish teacher. He was well known. He was uh, doing very well in this way as, as what was called a Pharisee. And he was somebody that used that position and that power that he had to actually persecute the Christian church. He was trying to destroy the church. But on the road to Damascus, on his way to persecute some more Christians one day, Jesus appeared to Paul and he stopped him in his tracks. He confronted Paul and says, Paul, why are you persecuting me? And Jesus commissions Paul, join me in a life that is truly life, a life of suffering. That I will use you to, to, to suffer, but to bring life through your suffering to millions and millions of others. As I use you as my instrument to plant churches far and wide in the ancient world. And to this end, Paul, in response to Jesus' call on his life, he embarked on several missionary journeys. 
He began working to establish these churches in the ancient pagan world. Chiefly, he, he did that. Chiefly, he did that in modern-day Turkey, modern-day Greece, and even perhaps out as far as Spain, but also in Rome. And it was on his second missionary journey that Paul came to Corinth in approximately AD 49 or 52, somewhere in the middle there in those, in those years. And I want to show you what happened when Paul came to Corinth. We're going to look at the book of Acts in chapter 18. And what I want you to know is that the book of Acts, it comes after Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. There's these four accounts of the story of Jesus' life and ministry in the Bible. And Acts comes afterward. And Acts is this story of how the Holy Spirit, as Jesus arises to the right hand of the Father, um, pours out the, his own spirit on his people, and the church grows. And it begins to, to, to spread. And life that is truly life begins to invade this world. And Acts is a story of how that happened. And in Acts 18, verses 1 to 11, uh, Luke, who wrote Acts, he was a physician and he's a friend of Paul, he says this. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome as Emperor Claudius. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I'm innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles, to the non-Jews. And he left there and he went to the house of a man named, I'm trying to remember how to pronounce it. I can't pronounce it properly. I looked at the Latin pronunciation today and I've forgotten. Um, I'll do it my way. Tidius Justus, um, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his, his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. And Paul stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. And remember, it's Titius Eustus. Titius Eustus. Okay, that's going to gonna bother me. Now you guys all know. Um, the point here is that Paul came to Corinth. And as was his practice, he would go first to these Jewish places, the synagogues, to teach about Jesus because it was the Jewish prophecies that talked about the coming of Jesus. But he was often having a hard time in those locations. And here he had a hard time again, except for obviously the synagogue leader and his entire household. And he was broadly rejected, uh, but was heard by many of the Gentiles, the non-Jews in the area. And the result was that as he stayed there for 18 months, perhaps 100 to 200 people were part of this small church in a place called Corinth, a city that was not much different in size than the west side of Vancouver, where we are today. And what had happened after the church was established and after Paul had first been there was that the Corinthians began to struggle to live their lives faithfully. They struggled. Their apostle was gone and they began to fall prey to all of the cultural vices around them. 
to begin to think that actually a life in pursuit of my own power, a life in pursuit of wealth, a life in pursuit of status or of sex or of pride, that actually is where I'm going to find true flourishing life. That's going to make me and my city great. And they were a church that was struggling to stay faithful to Jesus in a culture that was very much opposed to Jesus. Sound familiar? They just wanted to be Christians without too much disturbance to their lives. They wanted to live minimally as Christians and maximally as Vancouverites. I'm, I'm sorry. And maximally as Corinthians. Minimally as Christians and maximally as Corinthians. And because of this, divisions were happening in the church. Things were getting rough. And three years after Paul had left them, he hears a report from Chloe's people. We don't know who those people are, but he mentions them in verse 11 of chapter 1. And he writes this letter in response, the one that we're studying. And he addresses them. I want you to look again at the, the intro that uh, Megan so kindly read for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. Paul says this to this church. Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes to the church of God that is in Corinth to those sanctified in Christ Jesus called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ both their Lord and ours grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ you see how wisely and generously and kindly Paul, even in these first words, begins to confront their pride. He begins to confront their pride, turning them away from their confidence in themselves and calling them back to Jesus Christ. It's not all about you. There's something bigger that's going on here. Come back to Jesus and the life that is in him. First, he does that, I think, just by calling himself an apostle. An apostle literally means one who is sent. And he says, I'm sent. I've been called to be sent according to the will of God. To say that Paul was an apostle, it wasn't a power move for Paul, right? If you say, hey, I'm an apostle, it's probably a power move. You're probably trying to, you know, get the people in your community group to stop talking and listen to you for a change, right? It, it, but that's not how Paul saw this. No, he knew who he was. He said to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, that he was the worst of sinners. He says, I'm the worst of sinners. I, I used to persecute and try to kill Christians. Like, I, I'm not that great. But God has called me to this purpose. He's called me to teach a message of life in Jesus that is true, flourishing life. And saying he was an apostle, apostle, Paul's not just pointing to himself. He's pointing to God's purpose to God's grace, to God's calling in his life. See, Paul wasn't authoritarian. Paul understood his role as an apostle, as one that was literally called not just to teach about Jesus, but to live Jesus' life outward for others. He talks about the way that, that Jesus Christ's crucifixion and resurrection was literally being put on display by the way that he was called to live his life. To show all those that he ministered to that though death was at work in him as he sacrificed, life was starting to blossom up, blossom up in a Roman world full of cultural decay. Life coming through death, just like it came through Jesus, now coming through one of his apostles who bore the scars on his back to prove it. 
But it was his suffering of Paul that the Corinthians were beginning to reject. <laughs> because after Paul left, some other teachers came. And these other teachers said, hey, look, you can do things a little differently. And the suffering stuff, you don't have to follow that. You know, and why would you follow Paul? I mean, he was poor. He had to work with his own hands to provide for his own ministry. And these other teachers, they looked better than Paul. They sounded more eloquent than Paul. They spoke more powerfully than Paul. And for the Corinthians in Corinth, that was sure attractive. It was a gospel according to Corinth. But Paul's concern was that a gospel that looks like Corinth was a gospel that had no resurrection power. He said in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 17, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. There's something bigger and better going on than the things that you are attracted to. In fact, it was this message preached by Paul that God would use to transform this world. There's a, a historian and philosopher I was reading not too long ago. His name is David Bentley Hart. And one of the things that he said, which I thought was so compelling and so interesting, is that when you look at the, the history of the world, there actually only ever was truly one great revolution. It's a revolution of Christianity as it began to reshape the ancient world. We can trace that back and we can see it historically. Because all other revolutions that have come since then have been cascading downward in effect versions of or imitations of this one great central revolution that comes through the gospel, the message that Paul preached, the message that Paul put on display through his suffering and through dying with Christ to see the life of Christ take root in our world. So Paul says he's an apostle to try to steer the Corinthians away from their pride and confidence in themselves. But he does it another way. He begins to steer them away from their self-confidence and pride by what he calls them. Look what he says. He doesn't address them like he usually does. Paul has a usual letter uh, addressing formula. And he usually would say to the Ephesians, to the, to the saints in Ephesus, or to the Colossians, to the, to the saints in the church in Ephesus. But what he says to the Corinthians is this, to the church of God... That isn't Corinth. It's like he's saying to the church of God that just so happens to, to be gathering together on this particular time in Corinth. He encourages them in the beginning of this letter saying to those who call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, not just here, but in every place. It's not all about you. There's something bigger and better going on. The church of God is primary, not Corinth. There's a bigger kingdom, a better kingdom within their city founded by a greater God than Poseidon or Athena or Artemis. And his name is Jesus. Jesus Christ, the God-man who took on human flesh and came to earth to suffer and die, to pour out his life for the salvation of those broken and dead in sin, to bring life into this world of death and suffering. Just look at this text and see how often Jesus Christ is named in the first nine verses. Look at this. I'm not going to read it all to you, but look, there's nine times in nine verses that Jesus' name is mentioned. Do you think Paul's trying to get at something? An apostle of Jesus Christ to those sanctified in Christ Jesus who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
and the, uh, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ was given you in Christ Jesus. Verse 6, even as a testament about Christ was confirmed to you. Um, revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ in verse 7. Verse 8, the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 9, Jesus Christ our Lord. This true life, a true flourishing is all about Jesus. The church in Corinth had something so much better than Corinth to boast about. And they'd forgotten. So what makes a city or a people great? Wealth, status, pleasure, a stage for your philosophy or for your wisdom? No, it looks like Jesus. It's a city that's been shaped by the cross. Specifically shaped by the way that that this glorious God in his humility, willingly in love, poured his life out so that you could live. See, this kind of love is the love that's in the gospel. The love that is the message of Jesus that actually can change hard human hearts to be different in this world. To be part of a new creation that God is building. And on nearly every page, this is the message that Paul shares with the Corinthians where they cared about status and wealth and freedoms and their rights and their power and their wisdom and their comfort and their wealth, Paul would again and again and again show them the cross and the power of life that is truly life, seen in weakness, seen in sacrificial love, in foolishness, but in world-transforming power. Christ City, this is a letter to the Corinthians. And I'm going to end this morning in our conclusion right now, just a couple of encouragements from this passage that we read. Two of them. Look again at chapter 1, verses 4 to 9. As Paul writes these remarkable words, he says, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. That in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as a testimony about Christ was confirmed among you. So you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. And see, these words are words full of gracious praise and thanksgiving. And they're remarkable precisely because of who the Corinthian church was. They were full of problems. It was a church that was messed up. A church that when New Testament scholars talk about the messed up church, they all talk about the Corinthians. It was not a church that was firing on all cylinders. And their problems, they look remarkably similar to our own problems here at Christ City Church. Their desire for status, for wealth, for personal success, their preoccupation with their own culture, their weak devotion to Jesus. These are all things that we struggle with. And yet Paul praises God because of the power of Jesus that's at work in this church. By his Holy Spirit, life that was truly life, it wasn't coming from anywhere else in Corinth. Paul says, life that's truly life, it's coming from you because of the Holy Spirit of God that is among you. And it's the same for us. Christy, let me encourage you. God is at work here. 
Don't feel that your sin issues, that the things that you struggle with, that your weaknesses are too much for God to use for his glory. His spirit is at work here for good. To be a fragrance of life in Vancouver that struggles with spiritual death. There's another encouragement here though. Because Paul says the gospel Jesus offers is the exact opposite of our human inclination. You see, like the Corinthians, I think we too are a people that feel we have to earn our wealth or our reputation or our social status or whatever else that we want in our lives to give us meaning and purpose. Right? If you're in Vancouver, you're here because you know, you're a successful person in a lot of different ways. You're here because you're trying, to, trying to, to get something going in your life. Very much the case, very often. And we can feel burdened by the weight of all of this achievement that's placed on our own shoulders. That everything depends on you and on you and your ability. But Paul says that there's good news for you. Because in the gospel, he says it's not all about your ability at all. It's actually all about the grace that is yours in Jesus Christ. Just look at what he says. He says, you are not lacking in any gift in verse 7. Says, God's not left you lacking in any gift. He's blessed you with what you need in this life as you wait for the revealing of, the Lord, of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's saying God's empowered you by his grace. He's at work in you, through you, shaping you. Is in verse 8, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus. He's saying Jesus will keep you blameless by his grace. It's not up to you to somehow make yourself look good and feel better about yourself in this life. The gospel of Jesus is enough to cover you now and it will cover you to the end when you stand before Jesus. No matter what you've done, no matter how conscious you are of your own failings, when you stand before God and you're preserved blameless by the grace of of Jesus Christ, covered by his righteousness. And then in verse 9, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. It's not all about you. Jesus Christ is our Lord, and it is God who has called you, and God who has saved you, and God who will never leave you or forsake you. The message of the gospel is the opposite message of Corinth. It's not all about you. It's about the grace of God for you, in Jesus. And this is why we need to hear from this letter today. Because in this letter, we're going to be seeing a gospel that offers a better path of flourishing than the one that you're going to find in the marketplace in Vancouver, or in the university in Vancouver, or in the streets of Vancouver. You're going to see a gospel that is grounded on a better savior than you. A gospel that's grounded in Jesus Christ and guaranteed to you because of the faithfulness of God. Verse 9 says this, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Would you bow and pray with me? Heavenly Father, we, we come to you and we confess that we are a people who are tempted every day to believe that life that is true flourishing life is found in ourselves, in our city, in the things that we can pursue here. But Father, I think many of us feel at the same time this, this, this gnawing reality that it's not bringing us the life that we really want. 
It's not bringing us the life that we were really made for. Father, it's my prayer that, that by your Holy Spirit, you would begin to show us that true life is in Jesus. That true life is in cheerfully and willingly joining him, following him, obeying him, walking in the life that he gives. Lord, for those that are weighed down and burdened this morning, I pray that you would encourage them that there is a good Savior who welcomes them to himself. Lord, would you, would you encourage them with the gospel of Jesus? It's not all up to them. It doesn't depend on them. Would you encourage them that Jesus can wash and cleanse them of their sin? Forgive them and make them blameless for forever. Now and in the day when you return. Father, would you remind us that you are the one who is empowering us to do good things here in this city and we walk obediently with you. In Jesus' name we pray all these things. Amen.